I would invite you to a uh, Bible, whether that's electronic or a, a paper hard copy like I have here, and open with me to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll actually look this morning at the end of Genesis 11, and then at chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is one of those passages that, in my opinion, really doesn't need an introduction. And, and yet, I do want to say that the Bible is a take-no-prisoners kind of book. And the Bible means to dominate your thinking. The Bible intends to be the definitive information that shapes the way that you view the world, that informs the way that you understand who you are, why you're here, what's gone wrong, and what God is doing to fix it. And this passage is crucial to, to that understanding. As I was thinking about uh, what to say before I start preaching this passage, the, just a couple of phrases came to mind. This is the big solution, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, to the big problem. So in, in all books, if, if a book is going to capture our imagination and grip us, there's got to be a conflict uh, that, that involves people that we care about. And in this case, the Bible is, is not just a book that's a story, it's telling us what's actually going on in the world. And the people that we care about include ourselves. This is about us. This is about who we are and, and what our lives are going to look like. And the problem is outlined for us in Genesis 3, and then the solution that God promises is laid out for us here in Genesis 12. Uh, so before we, we dive into Genesis 12, let me just briefly summarize what we've seen in the book of Genesis to this point. In, in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw creation. We saw two complementary accounts of the way that things were in the original very good creation. And I just want to make a couple of observations in view of maybe, maybe uh, some things that have been at least going on in my world this week that, that make these observations relevant. Number one, in Genesis 1 and 2, nobody is enslaved by anybody else. In Genesis 1 and 2, there are no slaves. And, and that shows us that in the very good creation, it was not God's intention that human beings be enslaved to other human beings. So maybe you follow this. I mean, I ran in this week, ran into some people this week who are arguing that slavery is actually good, that the Bible actually condones slavery, and that people who advocated slavery are actually on the right side of the argument. Nuh-uh. Not according to Genesis 1 and 2. And not according to the end of the book of Revelation. There's nobody enslaved in the Garden of Eden and there is nobody going to be enslaved in the new heavens and the new earth. Also, um, there are no polygamous marriages in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam, and the, Adam has one wife, all right? There's monogamy in Genesis 1 and 2. So again, whatever wicked, evil human beings might do after sin, God created the world as a place in which marriage, marriage would be one man, one woman, and in which people would live freely responsible for themselves before God. So, very good creation, Genesis 1 and 2. And then the fall happens in Genesis 3. And to set up what we're going to see in Genesis 12, after Adam and Eve's sin, you, you may recall from when we went through Genesis chapter 3, there are basically three categories of judgment that God introduces. In Genesis 3.15, God places enmity between the woman and the serpent, and between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's, that's Genesis 3, 14 through 19. God curses the serpent, and he put in, puts enmity between the serpent and the woman, and the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then in Genesis 3, 16, God distorts the relationship between men and women, and he, he brings judgment upon reproductive activity. So, God says to the woman, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. And when we were in Genesis 3, you may remember that I suggested that this is the origin of all reproductive difficulties, whether we're talking about barrenness 
or sexual perversion. I think it all stems from human sin and then God's judgment on that aspect of our lives. And then he also says to the woman, um, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And there, I think what's, what's happening is the natural hierarchy, the natural order of, of male headship and then uh, the, the, the wife, the woman being created to be a helper for the man, that's being turned on its head so that now she wants to control the situation and he's going to respond with excessive force. So you got reproductive problems and you got relational problems. And then uh, after that, God says to the man, uh, cursed is the ground because you have done this. So there's a curse placed on creation and then the man is driven out of the Garden of Eden. Well, the outworking of that is immediately seen in chapter 4 when Cain murders Abel. But there's a line of promise that's traced through Seth. And in Genesis chapter 5, there, there's a 10-member genealogy. The genealogy traces 10 generations from Adam down to Noah. And then you've got the flood account of Noah in Genesis 6 through 9. And then Genesis 10 and 11, a lot of people suggest, and I think this is correct that chronologically they're out of order. So that in Genesis 10, you already read about the, the division of the nations and the scattering of the nations before the Tower of Babel comes in Genesis 11. So Genesis 11, 1 through 9, we read about that Tower of Babel where people are in rebellion against God and they're trying to build this tower into heaven and God prevents that and he confuses the languages and he disperses people and in Genesis 10, we read of the table of nations, these 70 nations that, uh, that descend or that, that span out over the earth from that event. And that brings us to where we are today. And what we have here, in, starting in Genesis 11, verse 10, is another 10-member genealogy. And this one is going to start with Noah's son, Shem, and march us down to Abram. So... Genesis is very interested in getting its audience, Moses is interested in getting his audience from Adam to Abram. And he shows us the generations that go from Adam to Noah, and then from Noah's son Shem here in Genesis 11, down to Abram. And what this is telling us is, Abram is in the line of descent of the seed of the woman. It's also showing us, it's also showing us that that people were keeping track of this line of descent. And Moses doesn't say this overtly, but I'm going to tell you what I think is implicitly happening here. Moses doesn't say something like this. People believed God's promise in Genesis 3.15. And because they believed God's promise in Genesis 3.15, they recorded the generations. Because with each birth of the next male heir in the line, they're seeing God's faithfulness. And as they march forward, as we saw with Noah's birth, where Lamech is saying, this one will give us relief from the curses that God introduced in, into the world because of sin. As the gene generations march forward, I think they're hoping maybe this one is going to be the seed of the woman. Now, again, the text doesn't say that, but I would ask you, why is the genealogy here? Why is the genealogy here, if that's not the point? So what I've just said is my interpretation of why this genealogy is here, and I think it reflects a hope for the one promised in Genesis 3.15 and faith in God's promises. So here's a word of exhortation to you, a word of application. When God speaks in the Bible, pay attention to it. Wrap your arms around it. Get your fingers onto it. Now, let me just flesh out what I mean by these metaphorical statements. Lock onto it with your brain. That's really what I'm saying. Because, you, you know, we're talking about words that you hear with your ears and that you think about with your minds. You can't really wrap your fingers and your arms around those, but that's what you need to do mentally. You need to lay hold of these promises, and then you need to do things in response to these promises that show that you believe these promises, like keep track of a genealogy, keep track of the generations, do things that indicate that you're hoping that God is going to bring to pass exactly what he said he will do. 
So let's just look here and work through this genealogy quickly, Lord willing. Uh, Genesis 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. We've seen this kind of thing before. Look back at 10.1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Now notice, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So like we said uh, the last time we were in Genesis 10 together, Moses tends to start broad and then narrow in. So he starts with the sons of Noah, but now he's narrowing in on Shem. And then look at 11.27. These are the generations of Terah. So that, that statement, these are the generations of, this is like a heading for the book of Genesis that's marking off these divisions for you. And then we read in 11.10 and following, when Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. Now, in my, in my attempts to calculate this, I'll tell you what I did. I did the same thing with uh, Genesis 5, I, this brief explanation. Um, Abraham's birth can, can be reliably dated to 2166 B.C. That's when we think Abraham was born. And you can work back through these gene genealogies and come up with dates. And so it looks to me like the flood happens, if my, if my uh, finger is working the calculator right and my brain is, in, is thinking of the right numbers to input in that calculator, uh, it looks to me like the flood happened in 2558 B.C. and that... Um, uh, Arpachshad was then born in 2556 B.C. Uh, you know, maybe these, I, I think this calculation is, is correct. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, there's a couple of differences between this genealogy and the one in Genesis 5. Do you remember how the one in Genesis 5 ends every one of its entries? Do you remember what it does? It does two things. Luke raised his hand. Look at that good boy. The, the first thing it does is it says, it, it tallies the years, you know? So it tells us, for instance, how old exactly someone was. So the oldest guy, Methuselah, we're told in 527, thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and then you know what comes next, and he died. This genealogy is not tallying the years, and it's not telling us, and he died. But we can add up what we know about Shem, and um, it seems, this is remarkable, I think this is, this is really stunning, it seems that according to these numbers, Shem lived until 1956 B.C., okay, so he, he seems to be a uh, hundred years old at the time of the flood, and then uh, he lives until 1956 B.C. And I told you a minute ago that Abraham was born in 2166 B.C. That means that Abraham is, Shem is still alive when Abraham is, is born, and then Abraham dies in 1991 B.C., which means that Shem outlives him. Now, the Bible never tells us that Abram, Abraham encounters Shem, but he may have. And if he did, if, if, if let, me, let, me, let me just add this here. We should not think the only believer in the world at the time is Abraham. We should not think that. Shem's clearly a believer. And then all these guys that we're about to read about, um, a lot of, several of them, um, Shelah, the, the guy after Arpachshad, he outlives Abraham. Eber outlives Abraham. And then all these other guys, every one of these guys is, is alive when Abraham is born. So I would submit to you that there's a community of faith that is preserving this genealogy. And Abraham, it seems, becomes part of this believing community and likely came to know these guys. Which I think would mean that Abraham would have talked to someone who would have lived in the pre-flood, if he talked to Shem, if he met Shem, he talked to somebody who lived in the world before the flood happened. So he, he could have had eyewitness testimony to what life was like prior to the flood. And then we, you know, the Genesis 5 genealogy, um, um, there, are, it, there are 10 members from Adam down to Noah. Um, everybody but Noah was alive when Adam died. 
So everybody but Noah would have had the opportunity to talk to Adam and to know what life was like prior to sin. So the book of Genesis is giving you, it's, it's laying claim that there were real people who told actual stories and, and who relayed eyewitness testimony. That, that's what I think these claims amount to. So we continue through the genealogy here. Uh, verse 12, when Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years. Notice the diminishing in the amount from 500 down to 403 and had other sons and daughters. Now just an observation here. At this point in the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, in Luke 3.36, there's a Canaan who is entered between Arpachshad and Shelah. And, and so that's an interesting feature of the narrative. Um, it's in Luke 3.36. This guy, Canaan, C-A-I-N-A-N, in Luke 3.36, is not between Arpachshad and Shelah in the Genesis account. Uh, it's, it's just one of those features of the text. I don't think that's an, an indication that there's an error, um, but it is a, a discrepancy between the texts, and it's something good to be aware of. Um, I think that the right way to respond to things like that is not to jump to conclusions, but to say, I bet there's an explanation for this. I'm not sure exactly what the explanation is. I can maybe come up with some uh, creative attempts to propose an explanation, but I'm just going to wait and see until all the evidence is put on the table, and then I suspect that when I know everything there is to know about this issue, there'll be a good explanation for this. I think that's that's a, an appropriate posture of faith in response to a discrepancy like this. And then we continue, verse 14, when Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. Uh, and we noted last week that this guy Eber, this is the name that probably gives rise to the word Hebrew, and uh, it's built off the consonants, ayin, bet, resh, avar, the consonants that give us the word that means Passover. So I don't know this for certain, but I wouldn't be surprised if at some point they didn't think something like this. Hey, we're the people that experienced the Passover. We're the people who were redeemed, saved at the Passover. And we got this ancestor whose name is Eber. Why don't we just call ourselves the Eber people, the, the Passover people? And, and, and then, you know, as that, as that word comes into English, we render it Hebrew and we lose the connection to Passover. But that, that seems to me to be a a plausible uh, explanation of where, why they began to be called the Hebrews. I mean, why pick that ancestor as opposed to these others? Why not? I mean, in some ways, they are called Shemites, the Semites, and so forth. Anyway, uh, when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived, after he fathered Peleg, 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu, 209 years, and had other sons and daughters. Uh, this guy Peleg, you'll remember from chapter 10, verse 25, that it was in his days that the earth was divided, and then uh, his brother's name was Joktan in 10, 20, 25, and then we follow the descent of Joktan instead of Peleg, whose descent we follow here in Genesis 11. So in Peleg's days... The earth was divided. This is interesting because Peleg is fifth in line between Shem and Abram. So you got, you got it's almost like you, ten generations, and at the midpoint of the generations in Peleg's day, that's when the Tower of Babel happens. So we go from Shem, flood, down to Abram, and at the midpoint between them, not in terms of number of years because the, the lifespans are diminishing, but in terms of the generations, halfway between flood, and Abraham, you've got Babel. Verse, th verse uh, 20, when Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug, and Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years. Again, note the numbers are going down. And he had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram 
Nahor, and Haran. And then we have an interruption in the genealogy. So before we go on, I just want to make a couple of observations here. First, uh, like Adam, who had three sons, Cain, Abel, and then Seth, and like Noah, who had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, we now have this guy Terah, who has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So it, it's a, just an interesting feature of the narrative that this keeps happening. You keep having, happening the, having, you keep having these significant figures who have three sons. And then secondly, I want to observe that we've got a long line of descent here. A, a, a list of ten, nine generations at this point. Abram comprises the tenth. And in one way, nothing much happens. But in another way, these, these people are living long lives. They're living their whole lives. And I, th I think that probably most of these folks in this line of descent are walking with God. And, and so what we see here is a very quick summary of the ordinary life of faith. We don't read about any of these people having special revelations of God. We don't read about God appearing to and giving predictions to and, and giving dreams in the night to or making covenants in particular with any of these folks like we're going to read about Abraham as we go forward. These people are just walking the ordinary walk of faith, hoping and believing in the promises of God. So in a way, that's where we find ourselves, you know, because, because none of us, God hasn't appeared to any of us like he's going to appear to Abraham. God hasn't entered into a particular covenant with any of us like he's going to enter into a covenant with Abraham. God, God doesn't give revelatory, prophetic information to us like he does to Abraham. So we're more like these folks in this genealogy than we are like Abraham, except we are following in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. Uh, 11.27, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. This is uh, one of those places that's not, we're not exactly sure where Ur is. They think, though, that it's one of the, the cities along the Tigris River, not far from Babylon. So the, elsewhere in the Bible, uh, Babylonia will be referred to as the land of the Chaldeans. And uh, that seems to be where, uh, though Abraham doesn't descend from those people, that's where he's living, he and his father Terah. And at this point, I want to, you don't have to turn there, but if you'd like to write down the reference, I think it's a, it's a helpful thing to keep in mind. Uh, Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua says this about, about Abram and Terah. Joshua said to all the people, Joshua 24, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Those places, like Ur of the Chaldees, these are places where like the moon god is worshipped. And so what this text is telling us, Joshua 24, 2, is that before God revealed himself to Abram, Abram was an idolater. And, and that's one of the reasons I said a moment ago, I think most of the people in this line of descent are walking with God. We, we don't know for sure. I mean, if God hadn't interrupted Abram's life and revealed himself to Abram, Abram would have continued right on his merry, idolatrous way. Uh, verse 29 of chapter 11, Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. And then verse 30 tells us, now Sarah was barren. She had no child. So, uh, this is an outworking of Genesis 3.16. Pain in childbirth extends to this woman is barren. She's infertile. Now, I want to invite you to think about what this implies for this line of descent that we're following. We're tracking the generations. And if we hit a man who's got a wife 
and she can have no children, what's going to happen to the line of descent? It dies. This is death. So in the Bible, there, there's a, an association of, of barrenness with death because it represents the death of the family line. We're talking about a patriarchal culture. In this system, Terah is the, the patriarch. And, and I just want to observe here. I know I, I'm using this word patriarch here. And for, that, for a lot of people in our culture, uh, that's like a dirty word. That means things like abuse and, and this sort of thing. And in, I, I, hope you'll, I hope you'll overcome those connotations. Because the word patriarch, it comes from the, the Latin pater, which means father. So patriarch is just about father. Fa the, the father rule. That's what we're dealing with here. And we've seen in the Bible that God's purpose for men is for them to lead and provide and protect. And abuse is the opposite of protection. So a man who abuses is not patriarchal. He's the opposite of patriarchal. A patriarch protects. That's what a patriarch is supposed to do. So in a patriarchal culture, the head of his own household is responsible for his wife and children. And then as his children grow and marry, he's also going to be responsible for his, his son's Families, in addition, the, the, the daughters will marry into another uh, tribe or clan. But his sons will stay under him, and he's the patriarch now of a group of families that begins to make up a clan. And then when you have an association of clans who all descend from the same ancestor, now you've got a tribe. And in Israel, you're going to have these 12 tribes that all descend from Jacob, and within the tribes, you've got clans. And then within the clans, you have heads of fathers' households. And this, this provides the basis for a society, a society in which the, the clans stick together and work together and help one another. And that's important for what we're about to see with ref reference to Abraham. We'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, in this patriarchal system, though, um, the, the patriarch is the authority figure, and, and it's, it's a very significant thing. Uh, going back to what I was saying a moment ago about the death of the family line, if, 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 if the next patriarch in line has a barren wife, he can't pass on to his son the authority over the clan and the hopes for the future. And, and so it's a, it's a devastating thing for a woman to be barren in a society like this. We continue in verse 31. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, I want to do... Just for a minute, I just want to sketch a map for you so that you can kind of visualize uh, these localities, okay? So uh, just bear with me here. I'm going to do the map out on the congregation. So maybe in the balcony, people in the balcony have an advantage here. Let's pretend that my son, Jake, who's sitting, sitting right here in the front row, is the Dead Sea, okay? And right behind him, Kathy, she's the Sea of Galilee. And connecting the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee are the Jordan River, okay? And then next to Jake is my son Isaiah, and he's about where the city of Jerusalem would be. And then where Zach is, that would be up in the land of Syria. And, and the capital of the land of Syria is Damascus. And so, you know, you've got uh, Jerusalem, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, and then Damascus up there where Zach is. And then out in the foyer back there, uh, Jeff Reedus I think that's Jeff. My eyes are not very good, and I don't have my glasses on. Yeah, that's Jeff. He's, he's about where Haran would be. I mean, this is not exactly to scale, but Haran is actually, if, at least they think the location of Haran, it's in modern-day Turkey, just, just north of the southern border of modern-day Turkey. So Haran's out there. And then over here, just pretend with me, the, uh, the line along the, this side of that aisle, of that row of pews, uh, pretend that that's the river Tigris, no, I'm sorry, Euphrates, 
And then the line of the other row of pews is the Tigris. And I always remember this by E.T. You know, E.T., go home, phone home thing. Uh, Euphrates and then Tigris. That's the order that they go. And so on, across the river Euphrates there, that's where Babylon would be. That's where Ur would be. And so Abram's family, they've gone north out there to where Jeph is, to Haran. And, if, and then the Lord is going to summon Abram south into the land of Canaan, which would be over here kind of um, on, on the other side of the river Jordan there, where the land of Israel would be. So that's kind of what, br- broadly speaking, what we're dealing with. Verse 31, Terah took Abram his son. Oh, I already read this. Uh, verse 32, the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now before we read on, let me, let me go back to this patriarchal system. And, and I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna invite you to think about our culture, okay? In our culture, we develop networks of relationships. And those networks of relationship, they help us in all kinds of ways. Um, so, for instance, if, if, if one of us in this room were to need a job, he would probably communicate the need to all of us in this room and to other friends and associates and people who might know of jobs, might be able to help him get a job. And then what would happen is, uh, this has happened with those of us in this room, we would put one another down as a reference for that employer so that when the employer calls, he wants to talk to someone who knows this person, someone who can vouch for this person. And these networks of relationship, they operate because we have uh, shared information about one another. We're all working with the same language, and we're all operating in the same culture, so we understand what's going on, and we're able to communicate with one another. You've got the same thing going on in the ancient world. It's just largely contained within this patriarchal system. And in, an, in the ancient world, uh, Abram and his family, they're probably herdsmen. And so the kinds of networks of relationships that they've got as they, as they migrate around, likely, and take care of their flocks and herds, it's like they're, they're migrant ranchers moving around with their flocks and herds. The, the other men in the clan, these are, these are going to be the people who are protecting your flock when you need to go take a rest. These are going to be the people that if somebody raids your flock, you get your, your other men in your clan together and you go get your property back and you protect one another and you help one another and you vouch for one another. And, and your whole life, really, your security, your dependence, your understanding of what is going to happen in the future, it's all related to this patriarchal clan system. And look at what happens in chapter 12 of of Genesis. We read here, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country. I don't know if you've ever contemplated moving to a different country. Uh, A couple of years ago, Jake and I got to go to Germany. Did they drive on the right side of the road? I can't remember. Everything's different over there, you know? Everything's different. They speak a different language. They have all different customs. They have a totally different culture. We were foreigners. So everything that Abraham's comfortable with, he's told, leave it. Go from your country. And then look at the next words. And your kindred. Look, Abram, I know that you feel secure with those brothers and uncles and cousins and that father of yours. Go. Leave everything that you rely on as your trust, as your security, as your backup. Go. Go from your country where you know how things work and you know the language that's spoken and your kindred, your whole kinship unit. And your father's house. Abram, I'm not just calling you to leave your country and your clan. You leave your father's house too your brothers, your own father, you're to leave it all. I wonder wonder if, if you can put yourself in Abraham's shoes and consider the prospects of this, of what he's being called to do. He's being called to go out alone in a world where people don't do this. People don't operate alone. 
What would compel him to do this? I think if we understand the cultural significance of what God called Abraham to do, I think we will come to the conclusion that when verse 1 happens, Yahweh said to Abram, Yahweh revealed himself to Abram as more compelling than everything else in his experience. Yahweh revealed himself to Abram as more, more to be trusted than the father's house, more to be relied upon than the kindred, more to be comfortable in than his country. Yahweh revealed himself as more compelling to Abram than every other consideration that entered into his calculations. Has it been that way for you? As you've, as you've read the scriptures, if you, as you've thought about God, have you come to the place where you recognize the God of the Bible is more compelling to me than what I hear on the news? The God of the Bible is more compelling to me than the way things are done in my culture. The God of the Bible is more compelling to me than my family. The God of the... Whatever it is, the God of the Bible is more compelling to me than the philosophy that they taught me in my class in college. The God of the Bible, here's what I submit to you, the God of the Bible was more compelling to Abram than the false gods he worshipped in Ur of the Chaldees. The God of the Bible was more compelling to Abram than the fear he would have felt from the marauding bands that, were, that, that he was now opening himself up to be, to be plundered by. The God of the Bible was more compelling to Abram than everything else in his human experience. And I got a phrase for this. When somebody experiences the God of the Bible like this, I think we call it irresistible grace. That doesn't mean that we're being forced to do something. It means, it means that the God of the Bible is irresistible the way that I find my wife irresistible, okay? It means that the God of the Bible is more compelling than everything else. And Abram freely chose to do it in response to the overcoming, irresistible persuasion of the God of the Bible. That's what irresistible grace means. And God doesn't even tell him where he's going. Look at the end of verse 1. Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Where are we going? I, we'll get to that. Don't worry about that right now. Just go. I want you to go. And I'll show you where to go. And then God starts making these promises to Abram. And these promises are, they, they are better for Abram than, than what he stood to gain if he stayed in his country. These promises are better than what he would have had had he remained with his kindred in his father's house. The Lord says to him in Genesis 12 too, and I will make of you a great nation. Now when we hear nation, we don't necessarily think land, but in this world, in the world of Genesis, when you hear nation, you think land, and that becomes explicit down in verse 7. Uh, where the Lord said, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your seed, to your offspring, I will give this land. So land is implicit with, I will make of you a great nation. And then he goes on to promise, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is a remarkable promise. Just stop and think for a moment. What would have happened had Abram not obeyed God. I mean, where would we be? We are, we are following in the footsteps of the people of Abram. Paul says in Galatians 3 that the, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. And we read in Luke chapter 1 about how Zechariah celebrated the way that God was keeping the promises that he made to Abraham and the call to worship echoes this blessing of Abraham as David prays for the future king from his line. And he says, may all people be blessed in him. He's quoting essentially Genesis 12, 3. Where would we be if Abraham had decided, you know, it's just more comfortable here in my country and my kindred and my father's house. Don't think I'm going to go. We'd be lost is where we would be. 
we're not lost because the Word of God is powerful and effective. And I think that, you know, a lot of times people emphasize the faith of Abraham. That's true. Abraham believed. They emphasize the obedience of Abraham. That's true. Abraham obeyed and went. That's true. But I think that the Word of God is operative here the same way it was operative in Genesis 1. Let there be light! And light, light's like, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's not even a question of whether I'm going to do that. And God says to Abram, go! And Abram's like, no doubt, I'm going. Whatever it costs, whatever kind of adjustment, adjustments it entails, we're out. I'm going. Because that God, he's definitely more frightening than anything else that stands to frighten me. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, also, okay, so land is implied in nation. What else is implied in nation? Offspring, right? I will make of you a great nation. Can't be a nation unless you have children. So it's, it's not, again, it's one of those things that is implicitly there, and it becomes explicit down in 12.7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your seed, to your offspring, I will give this land. And if Abram's thinking, hey, uh, wait a minute, uh, Mr. Yahweh, sir, uh, that woman that you gave to me as my wife, she can't have children. And for the Lord, it's like, and? You think that's a problem for me? And, and here I, I want to suggest to you that in the same way that, that barrenness can be associated with death, I think that, that for a barren woman to have a child, it's like resurrection from the dead. It's as though the dead family line has been restored to life. And this is the way that Paul talks in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says, he says of Abram uh, in, in Romans 4, 17, as it is written, the Lord, or Paul, Paul writes, and then the Lord, he quotes the Lord talking to Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead. And calls into existence the things that do not exist. You see what Paul's doing there? Paul is saying, the Lord calls into existence the things that, that do not exist when he says, let there be light. And the Lord calls into existence the things that do not exist when he gives life to the dead. And he says to Abram, to your seed, I will give this land. And then he, then he goes on, and down in verse 19, he speaks of how he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And, and uh, he, right before that, he says he, consi- uh, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. And then he speaks of the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So this idea of resurrection and the barren woman giving a child, you can see it, I think, there in Romans chapter 4. This is what happens when people hear the gospel too, isn't it? Jesus said, a time is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That happens with Lazarus when Jesus calls him out. It also happens when he says to people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, come follow me. And it's like, let there be light. And all of a sudden, there's a beating heart. And there's, there's an awakened mind. And there's a, a new desire to turn away from sin and to trust completely in Jesus and do what he says. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, that's what we want to happen to you. We want, now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God is going to appear to you in the same way that he did to Abram, but in the testimony of what happened to Abram, you can see, and it can be mediated to you through the scriptures, this experience of the living God who is still giving life to the dead. If you're here and you're not a believer, we'd love to talk with you further about this. Um, it's interesting the way that in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, God curses the land. God promises a nation to Abram addressing the land. Genesis 3, 16, reproductive difficulty. God promises seed to Abram. And then also there's enmity between the seed of the woman. And God says to Abram, look at what he says here in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. It's like God is saying, let's just get this clear, Abram. The serpent and his seed, I'm going to curse them. 
And anybody that blesses you and aligns with you over against the serpent and his seed, I'm going to bless them with you. And then he goes on, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the big solution to the big problem. The big problem, enmity between the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, reproductive difficulty, problems with men and women, curse on the land. The big solution, I'm giving land to Abram. And, and I think we should understand the promise of the land of Canaan like we think about the, the beaches of Normandy, you know, in World War II. It, on D-Day, when, when, when uh, the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy, they weren't just trying to get, get those beaches. That was the starting point for the retaking of all of Europe. And that's the way the land of Canaan functions in the Old Testament. God is not just interested in that little strip of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. God is saying, this world is mine, and that's the first beach we're going to storm. We're going to take that part, and then all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And I'm going to fill the whole world with my glory. So land, seed, and blessing answering those curses of Genesis 3, 14 through 19. Uh, a couple of words of application here. Look at how effective God's word is. God says to Abram, I'm going to say to you about the hardest words that could be said to somebody in your culture. I mean, I, I, it'd be hard for me to think of, imagine, a, a more difficult set of commands for somebody to, uh, to obey and follow than what God says to Abram. And God says, that's what I'm going to tell you to do, and my word is so powerful that you're going to go do it. And so let me just encourage you, believers in general, if you're exposing yourself to the word of God, it's going to have its work in you. It's going to do its work. The word of God is living and active. It's powerful and effective. So I would urge you to be exposing yourself to the Word of God. If you don't expose yourself to the Word of God, don't be surprised when you start thinking like a worldling, when you start having all these wicked desires running amok in your life. You need to oppose all that with the Word of God. The Word of God is your shield. It's your sword. It's, it's what's meant to renew you. You must expose yourself to it. God's Word is effective. And then also, look at this, God's call is demanding. But what, God's promise, what God promises is better than anything the world has to offer. We have to keep reminding ourselves of that. Because the world looks so attractive. I, I'm, I've, I've related recently, I'm, I'm listening uh, to Brave New World. And in Brave New World, the people of that world, they take this drug called Soma. And they, they live this... This, the, 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 the scientists and the, the people, the world controllers in, in, the, in that novel, in that, in that world, they've perfected this drug that gives people this euphoric sense of bliss with no hangover. And so these people can't wait to take their soma and just escape from all of life. But in the story, sorry for the spoiler here, in the story, there's a guy who refuses to take the soma because he wants to live real life. And, and he recognizes real life as a human being is better than that drugged out, even though euphoric, absent, lacking experience. What God offers is better. God's promises are better. And then th fourthly here, God's word is effective, God's call is demanding, God's promises are better, and God's plan is to bless God's plan is to bless. And look again at what he says to Abram at the end of verse 2. So that you will be a blessing. If you're a believer, I think this applies to you. You're going to be a blessing. If you're a believer, you are going to be a blessing. Because you're going to take the knowledge of God. You're going to take the ways of God. You're going to take the news that there's a Savior who gave his life that people might live. And it's this passage, it's all nations of the earth being blessed in Abraham that, that ultimately informs why, why we're so uh, eager to see people go out and to support them. So this is why Amber and Jen and Blakely and Tyler and Jenna and Garrett and Lee and the Housleys and the farmers are off doing what they're doing. 
And this is why Kevin's doing what he's doing up in Weyburn, Saskatchewan. And Bobby's doing what he's doing in Bozeman, Montana. And Ryan in Graham, Texas. And um, I can't read my writing. Um, oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, Brandon Boone in Enoch, Utah now. And Ian in Singapore. And Ryan in Orange County. And Jimmy in Edwards, Illinois. And Brant in Vancouver. And there are so many others that we could name. This is why they're out doing what they're doing. This is why we pray for these brothers. So we don't want to lose the plot. The blessing of Abram, the blessing of Abraham answers the words of judgment spoken over human sin. This is God's plan to save and bless the world. And in Christ Jesus, praise the Lord, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles so that we too participate in this rich cultivated root. Let's pray together. Father, you have been so good to us. And Lord, we want to live for you. We want to experience you the way that Abraham did. We want to hear your word the way that Abraham heard it. And so, Father, we pray that you would make us faithful to, to be reading and studying and memorizing and meditating upon your word. And we pray that it would have its way in our hearts and that we would find you to be more beautiful and more satisfying and more refreshing and more encouraging than the fleeting pleasures of sin, than the respect and esteem of worldly people, than the luxuries that, that can be had in this life. Lord, we pray that you would cause your word to make us faithful. We ask that you would satisfy us with your steadfast love, that we might be glad and rejoice in you all our days. And we pray that you would make us the blessing that you said you would bring to pass. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.